Okay, just before we get going on the Jodcast this issue, we have our usual little question for you, and this time it's a word puzzle. But it's a word puzzle about numbers. I want you to turn four into five in seven steps, or, or five links if you want. Turn four, the letters F-O-U-R, into five. F-I-V-E. And you've got five links in which to do it. So, the answer, after this. The Jodcast. Now extending to all reaches of the BBC. With David Alt, Stuart Lowe and Nick Rattenbury. The Jodcast. June Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the June Extra Edition of the Jodcast. Uh, I'm back again and joining me are Stuart and Nick. Hi guys. Hi Dave. Hi everyone. Hello everybody. Hello. So why don't you tell us what's coming up on this edition? First up, we have a review of the feedback received by email, Facebook and various other channels of communication. And we have an interview with Dr. Tim Huger about cosmic rays and the Pierre Auger Observatory. So, starting with the iTunes feedback, we had two reviews, one from the US store and one from the UK store. So, thank you to Science Please and to Gunnar Graham, who both enjoy the show and they think our presentation is friendly and the guests are interesting. So, thank you very much to those two. And if you want to review us on iTunes, please go to iTunes and give us a review. Yes, now, and uh, feedback from the website. Many thanks to Mike Van Voren for his comments and glad to read that you had a good night stargazing a while back thanks also to john a and also from andy hewson who notes that he heard yours truly on the bbc world service talking about the latest planet discovery yes nick you were getting around a bit you were on bbc news 24 as well a few yes. weeks ago very exciting so so tell us what exactly? Why were you being? Why was I on being interviewed? Right. Well, the news is that uh, recently published is some work about a new planet discovery, a new extrasolar planetary system using the technique of microlensing, which is my research field. Microlensing is that process where you've got light from a background star being lensed by the gravity of a foreground object. In this case, the foreground object was a star and a planet, and you're able to discover all sorts of things about the planetary system in these microlensing events. Why this particular event was very exciting was because the planet that was discovered was very, very small. In fact, it is the lightest planet found to date. How light is that? How light is that? That's, uh, the planet is about three Earth masses. It's the lightest extrasolar planet found to date orbiting a normal star because, as many of the listeners will you'll know, that uh, some of the first planets discovered were going around pole stars. That was back in 92, I think. Wasn't it? Yeah, that's they right. In 1992, Alex Volskan uh, discovered uh, planets going around pole stars. That was very exciting at the time, of course. It was the first extrasolar planets that we'd found. But it was things have changed a little bit now that we're finding planets going around stars. Pulsars are these end result, these dead stars, uh, which just happen to go beep every so often in the radio, and we can mm. measure those beeps very accurately, leading us to find planets. But in the technique that was used for this planetary event, we are just interested in the gravitational effect of the planetary system. Interesting enough, there's a, there's a comparison between microlensing and the other two techniques for planet discoveries, uh, radial velocity and transits. In the radial velocity technique, you're looking at the 
wobble of the host star due to the planet going around it, so wobbling the star backwards and forwards. Mm. And you're looking very closely at the uh, spectral lines coming from that star, and you can detect the star moving away and towards you due to the... Uh, Doppler effect. The Doppler effect, exactly, yeah. And the other technique, the transit technique, is very, very simple. You've got the planet occasionally transiting the host star, so blocking a small amount of light coming from the host star. Of course, it only works if the the plane of its orbit is lined up with with us. Mm, Exactly. So in those... those Cases you are both for the radio velocity and the transit technique you are relying on light coming from the host star. So you're looking for the spectral lines coming from the host star and the radial velocity, the Doppler wobble technique, and you're relying on some of the planetary host star light being blocked by the planet in the transit event. The Mark Lansing technique, in contrast to the other two, does not rely on the light coming from the planetary host star. You only care about the gravity, and in this case, the mass ratio between the host star and the planet. Now, in this particular event, the planetary mass ratio makes us believe that it is a 3.3 Earth mass planet. Now, this is largely based on observations that we've made, which constrains the mass of the lens star to a point where it's probably not a star at all. In fact, it's most likely going to be a brown dwarf. So that's a really low-mass star. That's right. The, 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 the mass of the star, if you can call it a star, is about 6% that of the sun. For a star to actually be a star, and by that I mean shine with... So the center has got nuclear fusion going on, it's emitting photons. Exactly, yeah. So, so fusion reactions are occurring at the core, and it's shining like our sun. You need something about 8% the mass of our sun before that process to begin. So the host star for this planetary system, is about 6%. It's almost a star, but probably not, so it's likely to be a brown dwarf. So this has led people to think, well, if you've got planets going around a brown dwarf, which is not shining under its own uh, steam, so to speak, is not radiating energy, then any planets going around it are likely to be very, very cold, Mm -hmm. which is true. Certainly at the top of any atmosphere of the planet, uh, it is going to be very, very cold. However, it's possible, other people have made theoretical predictions, that if you have a thick atmosphere on a planet, then that could, in a sense, insulate the planet. So a greenhouse effect, like Venus. Sort of, but in this case, it's more keeping the heat from the internal processes going in, going on inside a planet, if there are such internal processes, warming up. So a thermos flask. Pretty much, yes. So keeping the planet warm on the surface, to the point where you could possibly have liquid water. Liquid water is an exciting thing to have because we think it uh, it's one of those necessary requisites for life, as we know it. So even though the, the planet is going around not quite a star, going around a brown dwarf, you could speculate that if it's got a thick enough atmosphere, then surface temperature could actually be warm enough to have liquid water. But we don't yet know what the... If they have any atmospheres at all, or what the no, properties of the atmosphere are? No, unfortunately not. The observations that we make, we can't say anything about the structure or composition of the planet. We can speculate that since it is such a light object, then it is likely to be a icy, rocky-type planet, in contrast to a massive gas, gaseous planet right. like Jupiter or Saturn. But that's pretty much as far as we can go, really, with these observations. Are there any other observations that can be made that would give us that information? Not really, because... With future space missions, perhaps? Very difficult, because this planetary system is about uh, one kiloparsec away. It's about 3,000 light years away. So if you want to do some direct observations of this planet, or even uh, the brown dwarf, which it is orbiting around, that's extremely difficult. Hmm. 
So I should point out that these observations which made this research possible were from uh, the MOA collaboration, which is the Microlensing Observations in Astrophysics collaboration, which observes from the South Island of New Zealand, and it is a New Zealand-Japanese collaboration, and also the OGLE collaboration, which is a US-Polish collaboration. So this research was done using data from the MOA collaboration, of which I am a member, but was led by Professor David Bennett from Notre Dame University in the States. And in fact, we had a sound tour of the MOA telescope. Yes, um, back in 2006 on the Jodcast. Yes, one of our first episodes of the Jodcast. So if people are interested to know what you, Stuart, got up to on your holiday in New Zealand, uh, <laughs> people should go back through the archives and check that out. Um, Nick, just on the subject of brown dwarfs, I noticed that Jupiter is about one-tenth of a percent of um, the mass of the Sun, uh, which is obviously nowhere near the the 8% that you need. But what is sort of Jupiter's status? Because it's it's kind of not big enough to be a star, but it's a pretty big planet. Well, this is the thing. With all the extrasolar planet discoveries which we've made over the last 10 years, the lines are getting a little bit blurred. When you see something like a massive planet like Jupiter, which mm. is a big gaseous planet, you're wondering, well, how much extra mass would it need before it will become a star in its own right? And certainly uh, the planet discoveries which we've made have turned our understanding of how planets form around stars mentioned a bit of turmoil because the first planets that we found were these hot gas giant planets orbiting very very close to their host stars very much unlike our own solar system so the question now is is our solar system standard is it normal or is it strange and unlikely and this blurring of definitions on the boundary between stars and planets um, this week we've just had an announcement that the other end of the planet scale the bottom end near pluto the two dwarf planets, Pluto and Eris, who are beyond the orbit of Neptune, have now been given an official name for their category of, of object, and that's a Plutoid. Plutoid? That's been decided by the IAU that announced this week. I thought they were dwarf planets. They are dwarf planets, but they get to be in another category called the Plutoids. Is the EU, is the EU involved in this? I'm sure this is unnecessarily complicated. At the General Assembly in 2006, which we covered on the Jodcast, there was a vote to decide what the definition of a planet should be, and at that time it was deferred the decision of what to name a class of dwarf planets beyond the orbit of Neptune. At the time it was suggested they might use the word Pluton, but the geologists all pointed out that that was already used for a type of rock. So we decided not to overload the word. They've now decided on Plutoid. Yes, of course that happened in August 2006, and on said Jodcast we interviewed Joanna Ashwell, who is now Joanna Jarvis, and she emailed me recently to say that she is expecting her firstborn and has actually been playing the Jodcast to her unborn unborn baby. So we are now broadcasting to fetuses as well. The Jodcast in utero. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations to Joanna. Yes, and hello to uh, Jarvis Jr., yeah, so you can hear Joe's interview about the star J37 in the open cluster NGC 6633 and her predictions for lithium on the August 2006 show. And she reliably informs me that there have been quite a lot more developments and I think we should get her on again. And so just to finish off the feedback se- section, which has had an impromptu Ask an Astronomer in there, uh, here is all of the feedback from Facebook. We are now up to 171 members. Hello, everyone. Yes, hello, all of you. And we've had a wall post 
from Ian Stacey in Australia, who has given us his Twitter feed. We've also had a Facebook wall post from Rapid Eye in North Carolina, who says, Thanks for the shout-out on the last episode. Um, I was actually sitting at my 10-inch Dobsonian in my pasture, cruising galaxies in Virgo when I was listening. So keep up the informative and always entertaining podcast. We've also had feedback from Penny Jackson, who says, With regard to the Mars scorecard, what about Beagle 2? Doesn't that make Mars still in the lead? Beagle 2 was was combined with the Mars Express mission, so we get the point for Mars Express. And don't lose the point <laughs> for Beagle 2. Right. So it, because it because Beagle 2 didn't go to Mars by itself, it was piggybacking along with Mars Express. It counts as the lander for the Mars Express orbiter. Hmm. Uh, she also writes, um, Your interview with Dr. Ben Morn was cool, but unfortunately I heard it the day after I had an exam on things he was talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that, Benny. And Richard Hilly, who's in Manchester, says, It's the show with the strangest intros. Great. (laughs) So there we are. That's uh, our Facebook feedback. So if you are on Facebook, do add us in your groups. We're good for exams. And if you're on Twitter, follow us on Twitter. Yeah, so if you are on Twitter, um, do let us know and we will follow you and we will have your Twitter feeds plonking into our inbox whenever you whenever you send them. Other things that drop in in a constant stream are cosmic rays. Nick, do you want to tell us about them? Yes, I spoke with Dr. Tim Herger, who is from the Karlsruhe Institute of Technology, about cosmic rays and also how we detect them, and in particular, the Pierre Auger Observatory. My name is Tim Herger. Your main research is in cosmic rays. Yeah, actually in a very new part of cosmic ray detection. Cosmic rays are energetic particles arriving at the Earth all the time. So they hit the Earth atmosphere. And you can measure them, for example, with satellites or balloons at the top of the atmosphere. And they were originally dif- discovered almost 100 years ago by Victor Hess in 1912 when he did balloon flights. And he noticed that uh, when he was close to the ground, there was a high degree of, well, fairly high degree of ionizing radiation. And when he went up with his balloon, he saw that first the degree of ionizing radiation dropped. So the uh, radiation from the Earth crust, from the radioactive isotopes in the Earth, got lower. But then again, uh, it it rose. And the reason for that was this ionizing radiation from space, namely what was later then called cosmic rays, and which actually won him the Nobel Prize in 1936. So um, you can measure these particles which are protons or heavy nuclei or maybe even photons with balloons or satellites. But if you want to measure the really high-energy ones, then they are so rare that you have to have big experiments and those you cannot put on a balloon or a satellite, so you have to build them on the ground. And what you measure then is not the cosmic rays themselves, but whenever a cosmic ray hits the Earth atmosphere, it produces a cascade of secondary particles which rushes through the atmosphere to the ground with a speed of light. And uh, it really builds up to, well, it can be billions of particles. And uh, what you measure then is these particles that hit the ground, for example, with particle detectors like Geiger counters or scintillators. And uh, that's one possibility to to detect these cosmic rays with particle detector arrays, and it has been done for decades. Uh, And there are many experiments, such as Havara Park has done it in the UK, or currently the Cascade, Cascade Grande experiment is doing it in 
Germany in Karlsruhe. And another option is to look at ultraviolet light that is emitted by nitrogen in the atmosphere that has been excited by the passage of the air shower of these secondary particles. The passage of the secondary particle excites the nitrogen, and when it's de-excited, it radiates ultraviolet light. And you can actually see this light with optical telescopes if you put them at a place where you have really clear and dark nights. And this is called the optical fluorescence detection technique, and it has some advantages. It gives you much more direct information than these particle detectors. On the other hand, you can only do it for up to 10% of the time, namely when you have dark, clear nights. So you've described two different ways of detecting a cosmic ray. First of all, collecting the little particles or the, the, the results of a cosmic ray hitting the atmosphere, this cascade of particles, which you, you mentioned could produce up to you know, hundreds of billions of particles in one of these cascades. It's remarkable. So you actually collect some of these particles when they hit the, hit the ground in particle detectors. And the second way is that it's still up in the atmosphere as the, some of these particles in the secondary cascade excite a nitrogen atom in the atmosphere and then fluoresce, excites exactly. nitrogen and sends off a little UV photon. That's two techniques that are established by now and routinely used. And there's in particular one experiment, the Pierre Auger Observatory, which employs both of these techniques at the same time, which is really a new approach. And uh, the Pierre Auger Observatory is really huge. It's covering an area of 3,000 kilometers squared. And the reason why it's so huge is that these highest energy particles that you want to detect are really rare. At the highest energies, you observe like one particle per kilometer squared per century, which tells you you have to build really big arrays if you want to see something in the scientific lifetime <laughs> of a normal scientist. This Pierre Auger Observatory combi combines both of these techniques, and this gives you a lot of advantages that's called a hybrid approach then and in particular these two different techniques have very different systematics and if you have both at the same time for the same events you can really study these systematics in detail and in particular you want to pin down the energy scale and that you can do very well or much better with the fluorescence technique than with the particle detectors. When you talk about systematics of an experiment we're talking about the properties of the experiment, which may not be so good in some ways, for instance, I mean, one particular way of measuring a physical phenomenon might be not particularly sensitive, for instance. Yeah, or you just don't know. For example, when we are talking about this energy scale, if you want to know how many particles there are per time at a specific energy, you have to know that you have the correct energy scale. If you are off by 20%, then you get a wrong result. And um, this particle detector's they really sample the frac fraction of this cascade that arrives at the ground. This is a very indirect way of measuring this primary particle that has created billions of particles in the wake of this uh, cascade. Yeah, you have to know the physics of this cascade very well to relate what you measure at the ground to what you initially had when it entered the atmosphere, and that's really what limits you in this case. So the advantage of having two experiments in one for the Pierre Auger Observatory, what does that get you? Um, you can use the benefits of the fluorescence technique, which is a much more constrained energy scale, together with the benefits of the particle detectors, which is a factor of 10 in statistics because you can run 24 hours a day. And you can do lots of cross-checks and understand the systematics of your both techniques much better than you w could if you only had one of them. So describe the two ways of detecting a cosmic ray in the Pierre Auger Observatory. We've got the particle detectors. What do they look like? Um, they are water Cherenkov tanks, so 
somebody uh, described them as a crashed UFO mm -hmm. in the Argentinian Pampa. <laughs> so they don't look so pretty, maybe. If you look at them, they are plastic containers filled with, I think, 5,000 liters of water. I'm not completely sure about the number. Basically, it's clear water in there. And whenever energetic particles go through this water, they create Cherenkov light. And this Cherenkov light you <clears throat> measure with photomultipliers. And from the strength of the signal, you can uh, infer how much energy was deposited in the water, and then you can infer, well, how many particles flew through your detector. And then you can reconstruct. If you have many of these detectors and they are hit at the same time, then you know there was a big air shower coming down. And from the timing, you can reconstruct the direction the air shower was coming from. And from the deposited energy, you can reconstruct, after a very complicated process, what was the initial energy of the primary particle. So remind us again what Cherenkov radiation is. Cherenkov radiation is radiation that occurs when electric charges move through a medium with a speed that is higher than the speed of light in that medium. For example, in water, the speed of light is lower than in air. And when you have very energetic particles and they move through water with a speed that is higher than the speed of light in this medium, then you get Cherenkov radiation, for example, in the optical, and that you can detect with photomultipliers. And it's blue, isn't it? It's blue because the spectrum is such that you get more emission at the shorter wavelengths. So dipped inside your Cherenkov radiation detectors, essentially these big tubs of many thousands of liters of water, are photomultiplier tubes, basically cameras, I guess. I guess single-pixel single, single pixel cameras waiting for a little flash of Cherenkov light. Yep, that's true. And there are three of them per detector, and they uh, work, I think, with different... Uh, levels of amplification so that you get a better dynamic range. So you can detect small signals and you can detect big signals. And how many of these tubs of water do you have? The complete southern Pierre Auger Observatory consists of 1,600 water tanks, and by now they are more or less all set up and working. For a long time there have been delays because of quarrels with landowners who initially said, yes, you can put your tanks here, and then said, oh, well, we've changed our mind, or we want more money, I don't know. <laughs> and um, yeah, but by now, I think everything's settled, and the last few tanks are being set up. You mentioned this is in Argentina. This is in Argentina, yes, uh, in the Argentinian Pampa, where there's not really much around, which is what you need when you want to look in clear, dark nights. And as I said, this is Auger South. From the beginning, this was conceived as an observatory that has uh, one site in the southern hemisphere, in this case in Argentina, and one site in the northern hemisphere, and the plan is to set this up in Colorado in the USA. And this is simply just so you can see the entire sky. Uh, exactly, because you want to use this at the very highest energy for particle astronomy, and then you want to cover the, the complete sky with it. Okay, let's talk about the other half of the experiment. This is the fluorescence experiment, or the fluorescence telescopes. Yeah, the fluorescence telescopes are an equal important part of the POG observatory. Um, there are 24 telescopes grouped in four telescope buildings. They consist of, well, an array of pixels, and each pixel is a photomultiplier, which is sampled very quickly so that you can see the change uh, of this pixel on the sky. And uh, you image the night sky, and you see when you have an air shower that, yeah, with your high sampling rate, you see really that one pixel after the other lights up uh, on the path that the air shower propagates through. And uh, if you have really big events, you see this this trace of light on more than one telescope 
well, you see it on more than one of the four telescope stations. And this then means you have stereo or even threefold or fourfold coincidence of your event in the fluorescence cameras. And then you can pin down the geometry of your event very well. And from the total light you receive, you can calculate what the energy was that was de deposited in your atmosphere. And that's related to the energy that the initial particle had. And from the spatial information where you had the maximum of the emission, you can de derive where you had the most particles. And this is information that is important if you want to analyze what kind of particle entered the atmosphere, if it was a light particle like a proton or if it was a heavy nucleus like an iron nucleus. So you get the energy of the original particle and also the direction in which it was traveling. If you have stereo events, you get also the direction. Or what you can also do is you, you have monocular event, so you see it only on one telescope building. But it's enough if you have one Cherenkov tank that has been hit in addition, because this pins down your geometry quite nicely then already. If you only have the monocular uh, site, then it's difficult because you have ambiguities. But if you have <clears throat> only one tank in addition, then it's already quite constrained. In essence, what the telescopes are doing, they're overlooking the particle detectors across the Argentinian. Exactly, particle. that's what they're doing. And I imagine that to them, it would uh, an incoming cosmic ray shower would look very much like a uh, meteor coming through the atmosphere to us. There'll be a streak of ultraviolet light in, in the sky. Yeah, but I think a meteor would be much lighter. But I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would be much stronger emission. And maybe at a different wavelength, probably. Perhaps a good picture would be then that the telescopes which are looking at the sky would see a streak of ultraviolet light due to the incoming cosmic ray shower. Yep. And then a fraction of a second later, the shower would hit the Earth and send off produce signals in the particle detector array. Yeah, you could describe it like that. Mm. So you have your information of uh, the streak in the sky from the fluorescence telescopes and a little patch of ground which X marks a spot. That's where the shower hit from the particle detectors. You can work out your, your geometry. It's highly simplified, of course, but uh, and I'm sure it's, it's more complicated than that. But in principle, this is correct, although it's not necessarily a small area on the ground. It can be really big, like tens of kilometers big. So how often do you get one of these events? The highest energy events are really rare. I mean, how many of them there are is really one of the central questions to really pin down the rate of cosmic rays at a certain energy. But, well, hand-waving, you can say you, you get like a few events per kilometer squared and century or even millennium. So it's really only very few events. This is for the very, very highest energy events. I mean, what sort of energies are we talking about? Yeah, that's really difficult to describe. The energies, technically speaking, we are talking about are like 10 to the 19 electron volt, 10 to the 20 electron volt, but that doesn't tell you anything, I guess. So um, one comparison that one can make is if you look at the Large Hadron Collider, the biggest um, accelerator, particle physics experiment that has ever been built, you can accelerate particles to really high energies, in this, it has a diameter of 27 kilometers in Geneva underground, and it uses the best technology that we have available, uh, very uh, big um, superconducting magnets. And if the energies you see in the cosmic rays are much higher even, uh, if you wanted to build an accelerator that accelerated particles to such high energies as we see them in cosmic rays, such an accelerator would have the size of the orbit of the planet Mercury around the, uh, around the sun. <laughs> Sorry. So that's essentially one of the big motivations about looking at 
cosmic rays, looking for high energy cosmic rays, they represent energies which we simply cannot access with the best technology we have today, the best particle accelerators we have built so far. Yeah, exactly. You cannot create particles like these yourself. The fact that they are there is already quite astonishing. By studying these particles, we can learn something about the extreme environments in which they are created and about the mechanisms or the, the effects that they suffer during propagation from their sources to the Earth. And we can learn quite a lot analyzing these particles. We'll talk a little bit about where cosmic rays might come from in the universe a little bit later on, but tell us about another experiment designed for detecting cosmic rays. I mentioned these two techniques that are routinely used today to detect cosmic rays, but there are other techniques, and one which has been studied already almost 40 years ago is the detection of cosmic rays by radio emission that is emitted by these air showers of particles, by this cascade. 40 years ago, actually, these works started here in Manchester. People have discovered that they see radio pulses of length of a few hundred nanoseconds or so from uh, these cascades of particles. And this triggered quite a bit of activity, but uh, there were then a number of experiments and there was also work on the theory of this emission mechanism, but it turned out people could not really understand what where the emission was coming from and they could not relate the emission to the cosmic ray parameters, like the energy of the primary cosmic ray that they were interested in. And things were really difficult back then with the analog technique technology that people had available. And so somehow, after 10 years or so, all of this activity ceased. Then it took like more than 30 years before these efforts were really revived. And the difference, of course, is now we have really powerful digital processing of data available, computers everywhere, and there are new kinds of instruments being built where you have large arrays of antennas and each of these antennas is really a simple dipole for example and um, just a wire essentially just the wire essentially yes and uh, the simplest kind of antenna you can think of probably the whole complexity moves into the digital processing so you have very powerful computers and you digitize the data from each of your antennas separately and continuously and then in the computer you can apply lots of mathematical procedures to basically transform your array of dipoles into something equivalent to a really gigantic dish looking into a specific direction on the sky, with the advantage that you don't have to steer this mechanical dish, um, which takes time, but you can basically look into any direction you want instantaneously as long as you have the data available. And that means if you buffer these data, then you can actually even decide afterwards in which direction you want to look. You you can, if you, for example, learn that there was something interesting on the sky at that moment in that direction, and you still have your data, then you can afterwards look into that direction with a high angular resolution and look what you have seen. This is a fantastic technique which has been made available through essentially high-speed computers. And Let's revisit that just a, let's talk about that just very quickly. So each individual dipole in this network of dipoles, these antennas, sees, in effect, a large fraction of the sky. It's got a very wide field of view. But when you have a large number of them all seeing the same patch of sky, their, their field of view essentially overlaps. But by applying certain transformations in your computer, which brings all the signals together from these individual antennas, you can essentially make a very sharp beam, or you can pay attention to only a very small fraction of the sky. 
Yes, exactly. And you have the combined advantage that you are not uh, limited to looking into one direction of the sky. But uh, in principle, if you have the computing power or you can store your data, you can look into many different directions at the same time. You can have multiple beams facing mm -hmm. in different directions. And as I said, if you can buffer the data, you can decide afterwards. You can go into the past and uh, form your beam into any direction you want after you have learned that there was something interesting to see in that direction. Perhaps somebody told you that there was a supernova going off over that away, and you say, oh, well, we were observing at that time. Let's uh, turn the handle on the computer with a different set of transforms, and we can look in that, look in inverted commas, I guess, in that direction. Yeah, but the problem is, of course, that uh, you would have to buffer your data for that. And um, the experiment uh, I have in mind is the LOFAR telescope, low-frequency array, that is currently being set up in the Netherlands. And it will have stations also in other countries, like in Germany. And um, the data that you acquire there is, it's just so much you cannot buffer it. You have to decide relatively quickly in the data taking process what data you want to keep and what data you want to throw away. So it's a bit exaggerated, as I put it in, in the last few sentences. But um, in principle, the idea is correct. And that is what we take, uh, what we exploit in the Lopez experiment. Because there are exactly you have the capability that the Lopez experiment is an array of dipole antennas, which is digitally read out. And you have, in addition, an array of particle detectors, the Cascade Grande Array in Karlsruhe. And you exactly do what I just described, meaning when you get information from the Cascade experiment that there was an air shower coming from a certain direction at a certain point in time, then you have your data in your buffer because we have a buffer of up to six seconds and uh, then you can save this data to disk and later in your analysis decide in which direction you want to look with this data. So on a small scale it works as I said but on the scale of LOFA which consists of tens of thousands of antennas you are not able to store all these data and buffer it. It sounds not like a very long time six seconds. It's not a very long time to, to buffer your, your, your data. However, you should point out that, like you say, you have tens of thousands of these antennas spread out throughout Europe, all recording FM frequency, basically, constantly, all the time. And so if you think about how, you know, how, how big a file would be if you just recorded your radio, if you like, in raw format, not MP3 or any sort of compression at all, and you had, you multiply that by thousands, then it's a remarkable amount of data. Yeah, and you have even not one radio channel, but um, you have a bandwidth of, for LOFA, I think, the end 30 megahertz to 200 megahertz, which has space for, I don't know, 150 radio channels or so. Well, to save all these data is simply impossible. I think it's terabytes per second, but uh, it's much, much more even. It's nothing that any available hardware can process and, well, process maybe, but not save. It's still remarkable, though, that uh, you've got a, a, a time machine even going back only six seconds. It's still pretty good that you're able to, to hang on to that data for that long so you can look back. But to make this clear, the six seconds was referring to Lopez, which consists okay. of uh, 30 channels and with a bandwidth of 40 megahertz only, whereas LOFAR, no chance, not even not even for half a second, I think. It's remarkable just thinking about the, the difference from, as you mentioned, 40 years ago when they first started looking at radio emission from cosmic ray showers, that their detector array would consist of a field of dipoles and a trigger which would send a signal to a camera to take a photograph of an oscilloscope. And then they would that would be their detection. That would be a, a photograph of an oscilloscope 
pulse, which they then go away and, and analyze. And we're talking here now about uh, digitally sampling the radio sky. Yeah, that's quite a difference. To be honest, I cannot imagine how they achieved this <laughs> in the past. <laughs> so you mentioned the LOPAS array. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, the LOPAS experiment was um, intended to to use modern digital technology based on prototype designs for LOFA, for this low-frequency array, to detect radio emission from cosmic rays once more, 40 years later. For that purpose, well, it is, as I said, a, a, an array of radio antennas that are read out digitally with all the advantages that this brings. So you can look back, for example, up to six seconds in the past, and it is integrated into a classical particle detector array. So you have very good information on air showers that you routinely observe with this particle detector array cascade, cascade grande. And this is, of course, a very good basis to learn what the radio emission looks like because you have really for each individual event high-quality information that you can use to understand the systematics that you see in your radio signal. Yeah, we've demonstrated that we do see the radio emission from cosmic ray air showers. Um, we can see that the emission is coming from the direction from which the air shower was coming. So this it is also coming at the correct point in time, which uh, really is unambiguous evidence that this is radio emission from air showers. And we've also seen some correlations in the data. We see that the emission is related to the magnetic field of the Earth. So depending on which direction it is coming from with respect to the Earth's magnetic field, you see that the emission is stronger or weaker. And you also see that the emission is correlated with the energy of this primary cosmic ray that entered the atmosphere. If you have higher energy particles, you get bigger radio pulses. And uh, we are analyzing data in detail now to really understand the physics behind it. And the current interpretation is that you have electrons and positrons that are created in this particle cascade in billions, up to billions, um, that are being deflected in the Earth's magnetic field. And uh, when you deflect a charge in a magnetic field, then you create electromagnetic emission. And when you have relativistic particles being deflected, then you have the added effect that you have this emission in a... Yeah, you emit this radiation in a very narrow cone. So you have beamed emission that we really see in Lopez, that this is the case. And where is the experiment itself? And the experiment itself is uh, in Karlsruhe at the Forschungszentrum Karlsruhe, where there is the Cascade Grande air shower experiment. And that was the ideal place to set up such a prototype experiment to study the radio emission from cosmic rays. Ideal in the sense that you have this high-quality air shower information. It's far from ideal in the sense that the Forschungszentrum Karlsruhe is like a big city and you have an extremely high level of radio noise that makes it difficult to spot your radio signals. But, okay, you have to take this... Otherwise, you cannot have the information that you need from the air shower array. Is this a prototype experiment? Are you planning to do this bigger, better somewhere else, somewhere more radio quiet? Yeah, it is a prototype experiment which was set out to prove that you can detect radio emission from cosmic rays with digital technology and that you can somehow use the information you gain from this radio emission to do air shower physics. And uh, now that this has been accomplished to a great extent, the real goal is to apply this technique to do physics with it, to do like something like particle astronomy with it. And then you have to go to much larger scales 
and the environment in which this is currently being developed is the PRG Observatory that we talked about earlier. And uh, the plan is to go from something which we have now with only 30 antennas spread over an area of, say, 200 meters diameter in Lopez. You really want to go to large scale, ideally in the end really to scales as you have in the PRG Observatory, like 3,000 kilometers squared. And, uh, well, we are, it's a long way until then, but in the midterm future, we want to build a radio engineering array that covers an area of 20 kilometers squared and will consist of around about 100 antennas in the southern PRG Observatory. And then we will be able to, to see how well we can detect the radio emission from these high energy air showers. And yeah, hopefully we then see that we can indeed scale this up to really large scales and apply this technique next to the other two established techniques to learn something about highest energy cosmic rays. So very exciting research. So we, we look forward to, to more exciting results in the future years. Thank you very much indeed. You're welcome. Thanks, Nick. And now with news of an astronomical event, is Stuart. Yes, on the 1st of August, there's a total solar eclipse and totality is visible from northeastern, the very northeastern Canada, Greenland, the Arctic, central Russia, Mongolia and China. In northeastern North America, most of Europe, apart from Spain, Portugal and southern Italy, and in Asia, you'll be able to see a partial eclipse. That's between about 8.05 and 12.40 universal time, that's GMT. So if you go outside you, with your nice protective solar eclipse viewing glasses... Mm-hmm. Do not look at the sun with the naked eye, naturally. Definitely don't. That's very dangerous and you could permanently blind yourself. But get some safe way to observe the, cl- the eclipse. We've got some notes on the Jodcast website telling you how to do that. And go and have a look. So for our listeners in Russia and China, do have, you have a good eclipse viewing day. I hope they have clear weather and no clouds. Yes, indeed. Yes, and for the rest of you, I'm afraid that brings the show to an end. We shall be back, obviously, at the beginning of July. So until next time, uh, please leave your feedback on iTunes... Uh, on Facebook, on Twitter, you know the form. Come and visit us on the web at www.jodcast.net. And other than that, jod on, everybody. Bye, everyone. See you later. So, before the show, I asked you to turn four into five, rather than just adding one. You've got to go via five other words. And here are the words. Here is the answer for you. Starting off at four, we then go to tor. Then we change the U into R to make tor. Then the second R into E to make tor. Then tire, fire, five. So four, tor, 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 tire, fire, five. More puzzles in a month's time. See you then.